There are unmistakable signs, visible and audible, when we're running low on grace. Well before we're actually faced with temptation. Well before we actually end up in the confessional. Falling into sin is, so much of the time, thoroughly predictable. That's why it's in our capacity to make a sincere act of contrition where we state a firm intention to sin no more and to avoid near occasions of sin. If we couldn't see an occasion of sin coming, and be disciplined enough to get our guard up and keep it there, the act of contrition would just be a joke. The Catechism of the Catholic Church, number 1997, reads, quote, Grace is a participation in the life of God. It introduces us into the intimacy of Trinitarian life. By baptism, the Christian participates in the grace of Christ, the head of his body. As an adopted son, he can henceforth call God Father, in union with the only Son. He receives the life of the Spirit, who breathes charity into him, and who forms the Church." End quote. Then moving on to number 2003. Quote, grace is first and foremost the gift of the Spirit who justifies and sanctifies us. But grace also includes the gifts that the Spirit grants us to associate us with his work, to enable us to collaborate in the salvation of others and in the growth of the body of Christ, the Church. End quote. And finally, moving down to number 2028, quote, all Christians are called to, to the fullness of Christian life and to the perfection of charity. Christian perfection has but one limit, that of having none. End quote. So what we've just established in these three excerpts from the Catechism is that A, we're all called to the fullness of Christian life and the perfection of charity, B, that we need grace to be able to respond to this call, and C, that grace is the life of Christ within us. Now hold that thought, and we're going to jump for a few minutes to talking about the Blessed Virgin Mary and St. John the Baptist. The word that has been poorly translated, as many scholars have noted, um, as, quote, full of grace in reference to the Blessed Mother, is a Greek word, which I'm going to butcher, but I fully intend to attempt uh, without mumbling. I beg your forgiveness in advance. <clears throat> the word is kehaditomene, and this is in Luke chapter 1, verse 28. I've included in this week's podcast description six sources for those interested in reading up on this word. So I'm just going to spend a few minutes on it. This word is not what the entire episode is about. Um, those resources are from New Advent, EWTN, uh, the Vatican's website, catholic.org, and also biblicalcatholic.com. So from one of the sources which I've shared, I want to read a very short excerpt, and here it is. Quote, the word that Luke uses, appears to have been crafted out of thin air, 
appearing into the Greek vocabulary as unexpectedly as the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary, and as silently as the word became flesh. It was the word for the moment. The word is used nowhere else in the scriptures or in secular Greek literature. End quote. So this word, poorly translated into full of grace, is done so, it seems, simply because there is no better way to express it in so few words. The depth of meaning demands pages and pages to clearly explain, hence the references I've shared. But this word is essentially our basis for the dogma of the Immaculate Conception, that Mary was conceived without sin, that she was so overflowing with grace from the first moment of her earthly existence in the womb of St. Anne, that she was never touched by the stain of sin, that she was thoroughly preserved from it. This poor translation to full of grace, I think, has given rise to a misunderstanding among the laity that St. John the Baptist was also immaculately conceived because of the similar phrasing in sacred scripture as it reads in the English translation, not as it reads in the original Greek, but as it reads in English. So this is Luke chapter 1 verse 15 concerning St. John the Baptist, quote, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb, end quote. So I think you can see pretty easily the basis for the mistake. Filled with the Holy Spirit can easily be understood as full of grace. And also this note here, um, quote, even from his mother's womb, end quote, sounds very similar to blessed is the fruit of your womb in the Hail Mary, right? However, as proper scholars have expounded, St. John the Baptist was not conceived without original sin. Rather, that he was given a special grace at the moment when he meets his cousin, our Lord, and rejoices. And of course, this does occur while they are both still in the womb during the visitation. So there's an important distinction here. Mary is graced from the first moment of her existence. She was never stained by sin ever. And again, this is captured in that Greek word, Geharitomene. Whereas St. John the Baptist, scholars explain, received a special grace. And this special grace would have been conferred sometime in the third trimester, which effectively removed the already existing stain of sin from his soul. So St. John the Baptist was conceived with original sin and received a special grace after the fact. So now go back to those quotes from the Catechism. Let's recap. We're called by God to the fullness of Christian life, which is the faithful fulfillment of our specific vocation to which God has called each of us by name. We need grace to be able to respond to that call from God, and grace is the life of Christ within us. In short, grace is not a luxury. Indeed, it is an absolute necessity. How grace works in our life is that where grace abounds, sin cannot 
take hold. The deeper you are in sin, the harder it is to reach for grace. Yet the opposite is also true. Grace makes it easier for us to reject sin. Grace is not a shield against temptation. That's why going to confession doesn't mean that we're never going to face the same temptations, which consequently brought us to the confessional. But the fuller of grace that we are, the easier it is for us to dismiss and to reject temptation. I bring up St. John the Baptist and his experience of receiving grace after having been conceived with original sin, because I have found among some women, I wouldn't call it an objection, but they seem to feel that the reality of the Immaculate Conception makes of the Blessed Mother almost another species, one to whom they cannot relate or rely on for understanding. They find it hard to want and to seek her friendship, somewhere within themselves believing that she would not be able to be friends with them because of her lifelong perfection. I think what St. John the Baptist's experience teaches us, though, is that even those who are born with the stain of original sin can still receive grace in incredible abundance. And it is this ability to receive grace in great abundance, even after having been born with the stain of original sin, to which the life of all saints clearly attest. One saint especially, St. Dominic Savio, comes to mind. He died at the age of 14 without having committed a single mortal sin in the course of his entire life. And we know that so many young people now, by the time they reach that age of 14, have definitely experienced temptations to mortal sins. St. Dominic Savio, I believe, shows us that we can be conscious and disciplined in reaching for and receiving God's grace. The Catechism of the Catholic Church, number 2002, which is in the section expounding on grace, states, quote, God's free initiative demands man's free response. For God has created man in his image by conferring on him, along with freedom, the power to know and love him. The soul only enters freely into the communion of love. God immediately touches and directly moves the heart of man. He has placed in man a longing for truth and goodness that only he can satisfy. End quote. So grace is something which God offers freely to us at all times. It is there at all times for us to respond to and to receive. So as we go on, I'm going to be talking about reaching for grace. We don't know our capacity for grace, but we have been given excellent indicators of the level of our store. We can build up our store of grace. The more abundantly that grace resides within us, the easier it is for us to reject temptation and avoid sin, as we've said before. But even before we get to that point of being tempted, 
There are signs which can tell us if we're pretty filled up or if we're running low. And those are the signs that we need to learn to read in order to develop a discipline of reaching for grace when we know that we're running low. A really easy way to visualize this is your gas tank. And are you the sort of person who fills up when the gas tank is slightly less than half full? Or are you the person who waits until the empty tank light is on? Waiting until we're confronted with temptation to refill on our store of grace is like waiting until the empty tank light is on. There's so much that we can do before we get to that point. And so again, grace is not a shield against temptation, but the more immersed our heart is in Christ, the more firmly our eyes are fixed on him, the greater our store of grace, the harder it is for the devil to get our attention. While the sacraments are the most obvious sources of grace, what we all know from the Baltimore Catechism, right? Quote, a sacrament is an outward sign instituted by Christ to give grace, end quote. I think sometimes we forget that the sacraments are not the only source of grace, that grace is offered to us in every moment of life. I run through all of this, laying out this groundwork for understanding grace and the countless opportunities to reach for it, because there is an attitude that I have recently come up against more and more often that one of the clear indicators of grace is a luxury to possess. And yet how can this be true if grace is a necessity and not a luxury? Then those indicators given to us by God to assure us of the presence of his grace within us should also be considered necessities to life. I think that one internal indicator, that sense of steady and unshakable peace, is one which we all understand well conceptually. The objection that I've received, though, is to an external indicator. And for clarity on this point, we will turn to Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI. Quote, Where joylessness reigns, where humor dies, the spirit of Jesus Christ is assuredly absent. But the reverse is also true. Joy is a sign of grace. One who is cheerful from the heart cannot be far from the God of the Evangelium, whose first word on the threshold of the New Testament is rejoice. End quote. This is beautiful. The Holy Father is very clear. Joy is an indicator of Christ's life abounding within us. The saints and sacred scripture consistently attest to the necessity of joy in the Christian life, in the Christ-centered life. Psalm 16, verse 11, quote, You show me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. In your right hand are pleasures forevermore. End quote. 
John chapter 15, verse 11. This is Christ speaking. Quote, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. End quote. From Romans chapter 15, verse 13, quote, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. End quote. From Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 to 23, quote, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. End quote. From St. John Paul the Great, quote, The joy promised by the Beatitudes is the very joy of Jesus himself, a joy sought and found in obedience to the Father and in the gift of self to others." End quote. From Blessed Pier Giorgio Frassati, quote, You ask me whether I am in good spirits. How could I not be so? As long as faith gives me strength, I will always be joyful. Sadness ought to be banished from Catholic souls. The purpose for which we have been created shows us the path. Even if strewn with many thorns, it is not a sad path. It is joyful even in the face of sorrow." End quote. From St. Teresa of Calcutta, quote, Joy is a net of love in which you can catch souls. End quote. And finally, from St. Augustine, quote, When large numbers of people share their joy in common, the happiness of each is greater because each adds fuel to the other's flame. End quote. This idea that joy is a luxury to possess is like not even noticing that the empty gas tank light is on in your car. And only when you're stuck on the side of the highway five miles from the nearest exit with a gas station do you think to yourself, now why did I put off filling up the gas tank yesterday? We have to learn to read the signs. So here are five signs, five general and yet all too common examples of joylessness in a woman's life, keeping in mind that key quote, from Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI, that joylessness is indeed the absence of the Spirit of Christ. The first example is a lack of joy um, is hurting your emotional, mental, spiritual, and or physical intimacy with your husband. Your joylessness results directly in you being disrespectful and ungrateful towards him. You're being critical, you're giving him dirty looks, insulting him, belittling him, raising your voice at him, being sarcastic towards him, grumbling about him under your breath, abusing him in your head. It doesn't have to be out loud. If you're abusing your husband in your head, 
complaining about him to other people, bashing him in conversations behind his back, giving him the silent treatment or the cold shoulder, not sleeping in the same room as him, or threatening to make him sleep on the couch, making jokes in the presence of other people to the effect that he's in the doghouse or similar language, so on and so forth. You get the picture because you don't treat your spouse badly when you're joy filled, only when you're joy less. Example number two, you express your anger with inappropriate noise. Yelling, screaming, slamming doors, banging pots and pans and cupboards, etc. Example number three. You can't seem to turn yourself around. You can only wear yourself out. You can't stop being angry. You're in a bad mood that goes from a few hours to a few days to a bad week. You reach a low that feels like it takes forever to climb out of and you don't really have motivation to try very hard to climb out of it. It takes everything you've got to climb out of and no sooner have you done so when something triggers another downward spiral. Example number four, you regularly describe yourself um, in language like this, uh, hitting a wall is the example, and, and referring to your entire state, emotionally, mentally, physically, and spiritually. And by regularly, meaning more than once every three months or so. You're hitting a wall or, or some other similar language. And finally, example number five, which is specifically um, concerning mothers. If you're being unnecessarily unkind or even harsh towards your children, you're being set off by every little thing. You're finding fault every few minutes. You're not able to smile at them even when they are to all points and purposes behaving because you can tell <laughs> that what they're actually doing is walking on eggshells around you and hating every second of it. Joylessness is not pretty and that's putting it mildly it's more accurate to say that when we're devoid of joy our behavior towards our spouse and our children if we have any becomes completely undignified and that shouldn't come as a surprise at this point in this conversation if joylessness indicates a severe depletion of grace or even a total absence of it then how can we be dignified when our dignity comes directly from our identity in Christ. I'd like to share three last quotes to wrap up this episode, and then we'll, we will be spending at least the next episode, if not the next few episodes, diving into what I see as a plague of joylessness in our world and specifically in the context of marriage, and how to combat it, how to develop a discipline of daily reaching for the replenishment of grace that is constantly being offered to us at every moment. So this first quote is from Pope Pius XII on the role of the wife. Quote, There is absolutely no doubt 
that a wife can do more than a husband to make a happy home. The prime role of the husband is to provide a living and prepare the future for the family and the home in those matters which affect him and the children in that future. The woman's role encompasses those countless ceaseless details, those imponderable daily attentions and cares, which create the atmosphere of a family and, depending on whether they are properly performed or not, make the home either healthy, attractive, and comfortable, or demoralized and unbearable. End quote. There's a lot of responsibility there, ladies. And Pope Pius XII hits that nail on the head that, that there's so much more that we can do than our husbands. From Father Raoul Plus on home life, quote, Never weary in cheering your family with a smile. It is not enough to avoid depressing the family. That is purely negative. You must brighten them up. Let their spirits expand. End quote. And for good measure, <laughs> from St. Teresa of Avila, Quote, from silly devotions and from sour-faced saints, good Lord, deliver us. End quote. Thank you so much for joining us. You can find all the quotes and resources referenced in today's episode on our website. We'd love to hear from you. And we're looking forward to having you with us again next week on the Will to Wife podcast. Mm-hmm.